Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 139, VPNs and Stuff, recorded April 13th, 2013, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. Element OP. Com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that's not about Linux, but about life in the context of Linux. I am your host with the, not quite most, <laughs> Mark, <laughs> sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockroach. And with me, as always, are my stalwart companions, Chris, the Command Line Godfather, and Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson. Hey, gentlemen. Howdy, folks. Hey, everyone. How is it hanging tonight? Uh, I'm not going to comment on that and just going to move <laughs> right along into my first bit of news because I'm a kid with a new toy. I, uh, you know, I mentioned last week the lights went out in Georgia, specifically the power light on my laptop. So I got myself a new laptop. I went to, uh, went to the local Best Buy store. I, I, I did all kinds of research, right? I'm looking around and um, I'm, I'm thinking I want these specs. I want, you know, I want an i, a quad core i7. I want at least eight gigs of RAM. Uh, do I want the 15 and a half inch or the 17? Uh, 17 inches is a little big. So I'm going through all these specs and, and I even considered twice at the Apple store. I had a MacBook Pro in my cart about to Ooh, click the button. That's, I just threw up in my mouth yeah. a little bit there, Mark. Because they're such good, such well built machines. Of course, I was going to wipe it out and put Windows and Linux on it. I wasn't going to run the Mac OS, but, uh, I just couldn't do it. I mean, the the base models for what I would want for an actual Apple um, has really sold their soul to the the MacBook Air series, which are essentially netbooks. So to get anything with any real power, you're starting at eighteen hundred dollars and going mm-hmm. up from there. Um, and I just I just couldn't make myself do it. So in the end, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to drive down to my local Best Buy. I'm going to pick the one that feels the best. Uh, the one that I like the keyboard on, because I'm I've, I'm all, I'm on record as saying many times that every computer out there is more processing power than anybody actually needs. Um, but being the geek, you know, when it, when it comes time to to buy my own, I I go I get I fall into number uh, envy, and I'm like I want the best of the best, and I want the super high end. And in the end, I just went to to the store and I got a a, a mid range HP. The list price on it was about eight hundred dollars. Came with Windows eight. Yuck. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, and so I went to buy it. And also, my kids uh, bought them a cheap little two hundred dollar ASUS for their homework. Um, right. And so the two of them was going to be about a, a grand, which is again half of what I would have paid for a MacBook. Um. And so I went to ring it up, and and the guy, of course, the, at the Best Buy, they keep everything locked away. Heaven forbid they trust you with anything. And so he had to go right. get the big ladder and climb up on the rack and open the cage that's nine feet up. So first, it's way off the ground. Second, it's in a locked cage. I think either one of those Jeez. would probably be uh, uh, um, sufficient. But no, they had to do both of them. So uh, then he brings it down, and he, and he scans the code, and it's not the same machine. And he says, okay, here's Oops. the thing. This is, uh, this is not the machine that you looked at over there. It's exactly the same hardware, same machine. It's just got Windows 8 on it instead of Windows 8.1. And I, and I said, well, 8.1 is a free upgrade from Windows 8, right? He said, yeah. Um, he said, do you still want to get this? I said, what's the price difference? It's $180 less. Um, sure, hmm. I'm okay with that. 
Yeah, uh, I was really looking forward to paying you that $180. Yeah. So it turns out the free upgrade ain't quite so free after all. Um, so, yeah, so I got that one and I decided I would try Windows 8 because I've only tapped at it, you know, uh, and I tried I tried it just straight Windows 8 mm-hmm. and then I upgraded it to Windows 8.1. I'm um, sorry and sorrier. Yeah. And 8.1, that's supposed to be the salvation of everything, it just puts a start button that goes right back to the start screen. I mean, the same yep. thing that the start button on the keyboard does. So it it's not actually useful in any way. Uh, the the <laughs> uh, It added a couple of enhancements. I can't remember what they were, but they weren't significant to going from 8 to 8.1. But it, these that change is supposed to make Windows 8 immediately better, and it didn't. Um, classic well, think, shell that's what you need yeah classic shell and stardock start i think that's the other one right uh, uh, well classic and i think shell's the, the free one yeah and the yep. good one so see and then i think uh what is it next month we end up getting the actual updates that revert the start menu yeah they, the, that update hasn't released yet so that's coming soon so in the end i decided I'm going to go back to Linux. So I am no longer Linuxless, ladies and gentlemen. Those of you who have who've excoriated me for the last couple of years for doing a <laughs> Linux show on a Windows laptop, I'm now running Linux Mint uh, 13, whatever the latest version is, um, the Mate version. Uh, okay. I tried KDE. I just never have been able to get behind KDE. And I, uh. kn- and I know I don't like GNOME 3 and, and Cinnamon. So I went with Mate. It's, it's my old friend GNOME 2. With some enhancements, um, and it's nice, and I'm happy with it. It's comfortable to me. There um, you go. And it's I've I noticed that Mate is now being picked up. It's being maintained by uh, uh, Ubuntu and Debian as well. So it, it started and Fedora and okay. So it started in the the cinnamon the Mint uh, camp, but it has it has since moved on. So I felt fairly confident that it was going to continue to be uh, developed. Uh, so. It's right now. It's very plain. It's just a a basic gray screen, um, and I kind of like it. You know, it doesn't. I'm not, I don't have the wobbly windows or the transparencies. I can turn all that on if I want to. I'm sure I haven't even tried. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm just enjoying the simple minimalism of it. Uh, and just, if you've ever tried to get Linux to boot on a UEFI, that's a challenge. But to get it to dual boot with Windows. Oh my gosh! I spent literally all day Saturday doing that. Um, I can so imagine. you dual booted? You didn't like wipe? Well, I didn't want to wipe um, because I don't have. It didn't come with any physical media. So you know, if I try to sell it or whatever, and I want or I want to take it back to the store, uh, and I need to put Windows Eight on it, you know, I didn't want to. I didn't want to burn that bridge. What well, I did, however, do was buy a a cheap five hundred gig SSD. Uh, that thanks to Amazon Prime should be here tomorrow. I'll throw, I'll revert this one back to factory defaults, put my SSD card on, and be straight up Linux. There I was going to say you you can also accomplish the same thing by using the built-in Windows backup and doing a whole image backup to a removable media somewhere, and then wipe it, and then when you want to put it back on, just do it that way. So that would have been another fix you could have done. Funny you should mention removable media. Or Clonezilla. Only the super high-end graphics cards, uh, excuse me, graphics-intensive like gamer laptops that I found have removable media anymore. Um, The DVD drives are 
or apparently passe. I, I didn't know that. I still use mine like three times a week. Uh, it's still a, a regular everyday part of my life. So when I bought this, I had to buy a little LG um, external drive. You, yep, a little USB one. Yeah, uh, which was interesting because uh, two of the three USB ports on this are USB 3, and it doesn't like USB 3. So I had to find nope. the one that it worked with. Plug it in. Nope, that's not it. Plug it in. Nope, that's not it. Okay, this one works. Um, so anyway, I, I'm I'm back into the Linux camp, and I, I just got to say, it's an awful lot of work. Um, <laughs> I, it's just really is. I I'm still a stalwart uh, for Linux on the server. It's just the best thing out there. But Linux on the desktop is just a heck of a lot of work, and I'm just not really sure it's worth it. I'm sorry to to speak such heresy on this show, but I gotta Shame I gotta be honest. I just I'm Shame not sure you. it's worth it. Shame on well, you. Well, <laughs> you're you're on like a brand new state of the art machine, dealing with an older machine that is bogged down with updates and you know, and just the hardware doesn't meet today's stuff. I think you would be singing a different tune. Yeah, well, see, that's the interesting thing. Do we really want to um, hang our hat on that as the Linux community? It's the distro for old crap. Um, I'm not really sure <laughs> yeah, that's where that's we want to go. Idea. Yeah, I think that's a bad idea. Uh, and, you know, and you hear that a lot from the Linux uh, faithful. And they'll say, you know, it's great. It's low. It's great for low resource machines. Uh, and that's true. But do we really not want to aspire to more than that? I want to aspire more. I want that this this installation of Mint to be as easy and as functional as Windows. And it's just not. I'm sorry. It's just not. Did you run in? Did you run in, into any like hardware glitches with like the wireless card or anything like that? Um, only the Beats audio gave me trouble, um, and it sounded like it was two tin cans and a string um, when, when it played. But I was able to find some hacks uh, where you literally uh, restack the firmware uh, using uh, Jack uh, software, and and now I've got it sounding goodish. It as as good as it sounded in Windows, which wasn't great. Uh, right. Uh, so it's got two little speakers in the front and then a big subwoofer, big, meaning an inch and a half speaker uh, in the mm-hmm. back. And basically all the sound comes out of the back speaker, uh, which is the way it sounded in Windows, too. Isn't that weird for any of those machines with Beats? It, it, I think Beats is probably the worst thing that ever come out. Yeah. It sounds fantastic when you plug in a set of headphones. And I really think that's what Beats is for, because they want to sell their headphones. Uh, right. You plug in the headphones, it just sounds amazing. But through the just plain laptop, not so much. So that's, they want you to buy those little eggs and the headphones, and so that's what it's optimized for. Hmm. But having said all, the reason I said that, told that whole story is we're not streaming live on Justin TV tonight, and we're running through um, the Hangout if you're watching live. I see that there is one person currently watching live, and others I'm sure will join in uh, on the Hangout, or if you're watching the YouTube video later. To much to my chagrin, this device doesn't have an external input, mic input. I, I never even thought to look at that. So I come down here to my studio tonight to get ready, and I start to plug in the mixer like I always do, and it's just not there. So I'm going to have to figure out something. I'm going to have to plug in an external sound card uh, of some sort and then disable the internal one just while I'm doing the show because Linux doesn't like to have multiple sound cards. 
So I'm going to have to figure something out to be able to get to the live stream and to the to the YouTubes uh, the the audio that's coming through these uh, nice microphones. What you're hearing right now is just the the sound of my laptop mic uh, picking up the room noise. So I apologize for how bad that sounds, but you represent a tiny fraction of the audience, so I don't feel too bad about that. Those listening <laughs> to the show downloaded later won't notice a difference. It'll sound just fine. Uh, so it's just it's the travails of of new hardware. It's it's both the good and the bad of having a new machine. Hey Mark, you might have to try um isn't there like a studio mix version spin up of Ubuntu? Um I can't oh, remember the exact name of it, but you know it's designed for um audio use, uh, maybe something like that. Yeah, I'm I'm sure I'll find something uh that I could do, but anyway, I I've, I've got my my newish machine. It's a fraction of the machine my other one used to be, but this one works. So that makes it a thousand percent better. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, that's my uh, bragging slash complaining for the week, Seth. What's going on in your life? Well, I am headed to California A come Tuesday. We um, we're doing Windows Seven upgrade. Uh, we 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 started looking at the process in late February, and I'm headed out to our California office to finish it up there. We have flown doing a windows xp to windows 7 migration and so because there's several people out there and i don't have a family or much of a social life so uh, (laughs) it's easy for me to jump on the airplane and head out there and i'm actually going to take a couple of days when it's over and just maybe hang around in a hotel room relishing in the quietness um but yeah and i won't be getting back into into the into texas until sunday afternoon ah so that's this week you're leaving yep but it won't affect the show next week. Well, I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm taking my laptop with me. So my plan is I'm going to get in from the airport. I'm going to swing by my office and I'm going to do the show from there. So I will have, I'll be pimping out the uh, bandwidth for that episode. So that's and, Easter Sunday that you're going to be out of town. Uh, that I'll be, I'll be come flying back in. Yes. Yeah. Easter Sunday. Yeah. They really did pick on the guy without a family. Well, I know. No kidding. I, it's over Friday. I could, um, I could fly back Friday, but I just like, I think I want to, I think I want to stay gone a couple of days. And so I'm like, <laughs> and you know, since I'm not playing for the cost of the airfare, I might as well, you know, I, I have to pay for the hotel and rental car for the, after the job ends, but I don't have to pay for airfare out there. So, you know, why not? Okay. Yeah. It can't hurt. Yeah. I had, uh, the best day yesterday. I had a day where I didn't have to do anything. I haven't had one of those days in a very long time. Uh-huh. And, uh, I would love to have one yeah, of those. So I went and I bought the laptop. I fiddled with it. I cooked dinner. I love cooking, and I haven't had a chance to do that in, in months. So, yeah, sometimes those days, you know, Seth, that's that Friday and Saturday may may change your life, just having a day to sleep late and not do anything. Yeah, nobody nagging or, you know, can you do this? Can you do that? Hey, can you, can you, can you, you know, it's like, nope, I'm in another freaking state. So. <laughs> Enjoy it. Cause the, the, those days are always short lived. Yeah, I know, but yeah. And in addition to your traveling to uh, California, you're going to be traveling to Chicago, as you've mentioned before, and you have an opportunity for our audience to be a part of that. Yes. Um, you know, 
I, you know, the Linux Foundation, they're, they're giving me a press pass. And so that kind of sealed the deal and it provided me the excuse mentally I needed to, I'm going to go to this thing. Um, so I don't have to pay for the conference, but I do have to pay for the hotel for the week I'm gone. And, uh, that's going to kind of strap me for cash. And so I wanted to reach out to the community and ask you, how would you like to have a custom one of a kind element OP, uh, signed by all the hosts laptop, uh, for everyday Linux. Basically we will, I'll use that. I'll load up a distro and we will do a review of whatever distro that is. Um, and then at the end we'll, We'll we'll send it around so all of us will sign it and then we'll ship it out to the high payer for that. You know, obviously, if somebody bids a dollar, it would cost us more than that to ship it and we (laughs) wouldn't do it. So I have to make a little bit of money. So, um, and, uh, you know, I'll, uh, I'll put the specs up in a later episode. It's not a, it's not a modern laptop. It's a uh, Windows Vista era laptop, but it has SSD and, you know, for a, a lap, I mean, it's pretty much you use a laptop these days to uh, surf, to do Facebook, to do stuff like that. So, you know, if you're going to be editing videos, don't expect that. But just a regular general use laptop, I think it would be it would be more than adequate for that. A signed, cool. one of the kind, uh, unique um, laptop specifically for the Element OP faithful. Yeah. yeah, and you and the winner could even pick the distro that we review. So, you know, it, you know, if there's that one person out there and you really hate me and you want me to do Arch <laughs> or Crunchbang, uh, if you're the winning bid, we can go through that and you can you can hear the travails on air. So, all right, that sounds entertaining. So, as uh, we haven't quite worked out the details of how this is going to happen. But the, if you want to start bidding now, uh, you can send those to Seth at uh, uh, elementop.com. And I'm pretty sure that goes to him. I think I set up an email address for that. You did, <laughs> but on, I would have to look and see what it is. So <laughs> more details to follow next week. All right. And when is uh, the Linux gone? Um, it's in August. Okay. So we've got time. Yeah. And we might. I, uh, I hope it's in August. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> we might throw in a uh, uh, a DVD or two of some of our favorite bad movies. Maybe uh, maybe rent uh, buy Sharknado on DVD if it's available, and, and put that with That'd the cool. uh, with the laptop. Mm. August twenty through the twenty second in uh, in Chicago is Linux Chicago. Con. And I saw the first preview for Sharknado 2. It was just a little ad, so it wasn't a preview <laughs> on the Sci-Fi channel. But uh, I, I want it. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm just I'm still getting periodic updates from the guys at Kung Fury, and I just can't wait for that to become a real thing. <laughs> um, that's gonna I think it's gonna trump them all. I think so too. I can't wait either. So, Chris, you mentioned last week or maybe two weeks ago that you were going to be interviewed in the Spice Works, and uh, that happened. So, tell us about it. Yeah, yeah, it was actually a really good little interview. Um, it was about an hour in ten minutes or something like that. Um, I believe they're going to release it over on the SpiceWorks dot com website about the death of XP and how myself and three other um, IT guys that were picked to be on the show 
are handling with the uh, the XP migration to seven or whatever they're moving to. Um, some good conversations, some uh, interesting insights on people and, and as IT professionals and how we all think. Um, so yeah, go take a look at it. It's it's kind of a fun little thing. I can't wait to once it's released. I'm gonna have to make my family sit down and say, "Hey, look, that's me." <laughs> you force them. You will that's watch right. this. That's right. I'm going to sit them down and, and lock them yeah. into a chair with ropes and chains or something. If you ever want <laughs> to have dessert again, kids, you have to watch Daddy. Well, and, you know, it would, it originally was going to be done through a Google Hangout. And then at the last minute, they changed it to a Citrix go to meeting thing. So I ended up having to scramble to find a machine that has Windows on it so I could actually be in the, uh, in the call. Um, but it was in, it, what was more entertaining is the fact that ever since then, the machine that I used for that Citrix go to meeting call, um, has been blue screening. And I'm thinking it's got a bad driver from the blue, what was it? The blues microphone or the Logitech camera that it came with the, that they had me use. So yeah, it, it's, it was a good time. Um, I just didn't like the fallout from my machine, the machine that I now have to repair. Spiceworks, do an interview, reformat your machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it ends up to being. I don't know if it's yeah, but anyway, it was it was a good show. Um, can't say much more than that. All right, and the next good show uh, probably won't be any on here between now and then. But uh, coming up next month, we have a special guest that we've talked about before. Yep, I've been talking with one of the guys that develop, or either the, he's either the owner or the, I haven't figured out which one, which he is, but he's uh, the contact guy on Plex. So if you uh, message the the Plex Twitter account, um, he's going to be on our show sometime in the next month. Uh, he wanted to be on this month, but life got in the way, and he has to be out of out of country for a while. So he's going to be uh, calling. Uh, we're going to be nailing down some times and dates sometime next month. Um, it's going to be tricky because he, he, his time zone is Hawaii. So that is minus six from me. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. It's, it's like a four hour difference for me. So it was, it's been very interesting trying to line up a time to try to talk to him. So lining up a time for us to record is going to be just as interesting because, you know, you figure it's two in the afternoon, right? Or something like that over there right now. So Yeah. Poor Mark's going to be up super late for that one. <laughs> I Sean and I on the Taiwan Tech once did uh, a show with somebody in uh, um, Kabul, Afghanistan. It's a thirteen-hour time difference between Oof. here and there. So that uh, we got there uh, to do the show at, at uh, like five a.m. our time, which is five p.m. Her, his time. Um, wow! So it, it worked. It was just an early day. Yeah. Uh, so I guess. We'll have to figure something out. Yeah, minus six. So if our regular eight o'clock Eastern time would be two o'clock his time, which uh, you know, if it's on a Sunday and he doesn't have a uh, kids running around, it might be just fine. Yeah, it might be all right. We'll just have to. We'll see, see how we'll see how it works. Like I said, I'm, I've been messaging him back and forth, so we're gonna figure something out. And then once we have a, a, some dates lined out, I'll we'll put it out, and everyone will know when to come look and ask questions because I'm sure our EDL audience will have some questions, so be sure to send them in, because that way we'll have lots of ammunition to, to shoot at our Plex guy and see what he says. So send us feedback on that. 
Alrighty then. So I think we'll move right on to our first bit of listener feedback, which is a bit of a puzzling um, <laughs> bit of feedback from our dear friend Wise One. So I'll just let you listen and comment. Hey guys, just got done listening to EDL 138, where Seth brought up that Duck 2 R6 program. Oh uh, yeah, said that he tested it in house, but he hasn't tried it on a VPN. One reason, bandwidth. Anyways, Mark, I'm still waiting on my bacon. And Chris, one word, Gen 2. Your friend and pal, wise one in Las Vegas. We'll see you later. Bye. All right, so uh, I guess that was a, he threw down the gauntlet for your next uh, distro uh, review to be Gen 2, if I, if I heard that correctly. Yeah, he's been trying to get me to do Gen 2 for a while, so we'll see, wise one, we'll see. Um at least it's not like Linux from scratch or something. I don't know if I have the time to to dedicate to the to setting up, you know, Linux from scratch. But maybe Gen two shouldn't be too bad. And uh, I don't know if uh, if he meant that Seth simply would never have the bandwidth to test Duck two R six or or what. But uh, one word bandwidth, whatever that means. Yeah, I wonder if it just if it just um, like pegs the bandwidth, and so I don't it's know. Possible. Uh, because we do there, have- you can't limit it, you know, like um, if you torrent, you can limit your inbound or outbound torrent to whatever you want to. But uh, that wasn't the thing with Duck. Yeah, we did have a little feedback from um, Jeff, uh, who said that he tried it and he was about to try it on a VPN. He said he, he used it locally and then, and then it worked. So people out there are trying it. So uh, we'll see uh, see how that goes. Uh, Our next listener feedback is from a fellow named Byron, who has some thoughts on PC power consumption. I did a little rant um, a couple of shows back saying it doesn't matter, people. Uh, So he has uh, this comment that says, hey, really enjoy your program. My heart leaps every time I see it in my share on the pie. So uh, you got cool points two ways. One, for your heart leaping, and two, for having a pie. Uh, I assume that means (laughs) raspberry pie. Um He says, this has to do with a message about power usage and why some people are so nutty about it. I don't normally pick the fly poop from the pepper. Well, that's a lie. But running a 100-watt device 24-7 for years works out to an average of $105 a year. That's about twice what it costs to run a modern refrigerator or freezer. I also understand that you would spend three or four times that much getting a device to save two-thirds of that. I suppose that's just the principle of the thing. Hey, I'm just saying. Take this from what you will. Carry on, and thanks. Byron, a.k.a. Willard the Idiot. Um, So, yeah, that was my point, that you're going to spend more than you would save to buy a piece of equipment that saves money on energy. It's like people yeah. spending $50,000 on that electric car so they can save $3,000 a year in gas. If you drive it for 25 years, win. Otherwise, not so much. Yeah, I, uh, my cousin, uh, and I wish I would have saved this link on Facebook, he did the economics of the, um, the stimulus program the government did a couple of years ago to buy used cars and trash them out and get a new the one. Cash for clunkers, to, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a name. And he talked about how much money was spent destroying those cars and, uh, how much gas would have had to be saved. Anyway, it was, it was just, it's that same kind of thing. Hey, look, we saved $50 in gas and it only took us $2 million to do it. Yeah. So win for everybody. 
I, I have a friend who's a young guy who had his first real job and did what every young guy who gets his first real job does, went and bought more car than he could afford. Um, and so he's, he's got this big, beautiful uh, Jeep that gets roughly six gallons per mile. Um, and so now he's thinking, I got to sell this thing and get something that gets less mileage. But, okay, you sell it, you're upside down. The moment you leave the lot, you owe more than it's worth. So yep. you're going to take a loss on it when you sell it. Then you still got to have a car payment on something else. So if you're saving, you know, uh, $30 a month in gas, $50, $100 a month in gas, it's still not worth it. You, you, you know, you just got to deal with what you got. It's, you know, I drive a, a big truck around and um, it's just not worth it to buy a car because I have no car payment. It's been paid off for years. And even if I get a cheap car at, uh, you know, let's say I buy a, a $10,000 car, uh, how many months worth of gas do I have to, to save to even make that worthwhile? So if people make weird decisions in the interest of saving money when, in fact, they're not saving anything. They just wanted to get another car is the reality yeah. of it. Well, or, here's, here's when it makes sense, Mark. Whenever you're spending $200 a week to fill up your truck because your only job you got was 90 miles away, <laughs> you downsize to a car and cut your gas bill by $100 a week. Then it makes sense. So, Well, 100 a week, that's 400 a month. Your car payment is probably 350 a month. So, you know, you're not, you're well, not I, saving much. I went from four fifty. My my truck payment was four fifty. My car payment was four twenty, um, and I saved a hundred dollars a week on yeah. gas. So okay, so it, it made sense in that case. In your case, you went from a big payment to a smaller payment. What I see a right. lot of people do is is they end up with a, with a bigger payment, or they go from no payment to a payment. Right. All in the interest of saving money. Yeah. I uh, I I avoid payments if I can't pay cash for it. I don't want it. That doesn't apply for things like houses that cost a quarter million dollars but i try to live my life by that anyway well, next dave ramsey would be proud yeah well so. uh, dave ramsey is uh is a smart man and he's made a lot of money saying simple things to, yeah. to people <laughs> hey don't spend more money than you have and he's rich and famous uh, <laughs> our next bit of feedback comes from james who comments on life after Linus, he says, I don't think the Linux kernel will have a problem when Linus is no longer in control. I believe that developers are committed to the future success of Linux and to the foundation. Anyone who disagreed with the foundation leadership can take the kernel and start a project without impacting the rest of the Linux community, because I think the major distros will always stay with the official foundation kernel. As it is, there are already variations, forks of Linux, with Gen 2 using OpenRC, Ubuntu with Upstart, and all the others using System D. Um, then there are various package managers such as RPM, Deb, Pac-Man, Conrare, etc. Uh, this doesn't appear to have created a problem. James, EDL's only arch user. <laughs> well, James, um, again, you kind of made my point for me. If a kernel developer leaves, that's less talent contributing to the kernel and that weakens the kernel. So, um, touche, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. So he's right. It, the The end result will not be catastrophic, but there will be some impact when people yeah. are, are, you know, jumping around. It's just it's there's just always fallout happen. when you lose. When, when you, there's always fallout when you lose talent. The question is, how great's the fallout going to be? Yeah. Right. 
All right, next bit of listener feedback from Cyberglyph, who uh, basically asks what we think uh, he should use on his new machine. He says, hello, guys, I just found your show after being frustrated with Windows 7 and 8. I'm a little bored of that OS, and I'm now, and I'm not, uh, excuse me, I'm not new to the tech universe. I currently have an older laptop, I'm an HP Mini uh, with an Atom processor at 1.6 gigs and an NVIDIA Ion graphics with 2 gigs of RAM. Uh, this is my Linux test bed laptop to to jump on the bandwagon. I've been running several distros on USB, but for some reason, after installing on my HD uh, with Windows 7, um, HDD, excuse me, hard disk, uh, it seems to not perform as well. Is this a distro I'm choosing or the laptop itself? I love KDE, and I've tried OpenSUSE and Linux Mint. Uh, these are very competent distros, but I love iCandy too. Any ideas on what I could run on this little guy to get my feet wet? Uh, I'm new to Linux, as I mentioned, so any advice would be great. I do get, do I get a side of bacon with your reply email? Or can I at least hear bacon frying on the show when you read my email? Uh, keep up the good work. I use you guys as my Amazon link from now on. Uh, Linux must replace Windows, in my opinion. Well, Cyberglyph, thanks for the Amazon love. We appreciate that. And, uh, I think your experience is not unusual. Often, uh, live CDs work better than installed CDs because they're they're running so much from RAM. And then yep. so once you start putting things on the disk, if you've got a slow disk, there's your hang-up right there. And and that little Atom processor um, is probably, the Atom is probably not the problem, it's probably the bus between the drive and the Atom or the fact that it has a really slow drive in it. I bet you it has a 5400 drive. Um, most of those HP minis had the slower hard drives when the, most of the netbooks, for whatever reason, come with those super slow hard drives. And so that would be the very thing. If you want something pretty eye candy, we talked about Salient OS uh, been a couple of months ago now. Um, give that one a try. It did not require a lot of system specs. Uh, I thought it looked pretty good, and it performed everything I needed it to do on an older laptop. So give them a try. I'm not sure about the support uh, on the Linux for the Ion uh, graphics chip. I've I've never tried. I have an Atom like that, but it's running Windows, and I haven't tried uh, running an Ion. Um, uh, I haven't run, tried running Linux on an Ion, so I don't know. the The eye candy may not be doable. Uh, I do know that uh, chipset ha- can do hardware accelerated uh, like MP4 decoding uh, and MPEG decoding, so it can do uh, HD video. But I'm not sure it can handle the uh, the What's the word that they, when you're overlapping things, what's the word oh, for the that? the transparencies? Yeah, but there's a certain, and, and there's a special word that I'm, I'm forgetting. Compositing. Effects. I'm oh, not yeah. sure it can handle the compositing because it, that requires a lot more power than you think. And so a lot of the eye candy that people want requires that compositing of, of different uh, layers of imagery. So I, th- I think maybe there's going to be your hang up. The processor will be fine for most distros. Um, and, you know, I think the problem is when you start turning on the fancy, you start to realize the limitations of that ion chipset. That's my guess. Yeah. I would say the first thing I would do, um, is check because if it's running, okay, if, if KDE is running okay through the thumbstick, that means it's a, Mark's probably right with the bus issue. Um, if you're not afraid to throw a hundred dollars at it, Throw a uh, pick up an SSD because you know you can pick up a, a two a hundred and twenty gigabyte SSD for about a hundred bucks now, and I bet you the performance issues will go away just on the fact that you're no longer depending on that spinning disk, and you're now back to 
solid state media like you would be if you were running over um the u s uh, a usb thumbstick um i'm i'm the last time i played with a machine that had the um ion processor or the ion graphics information um it will handle some of the compositing but not all of it so you're gonna have to kind of go through if you're if you're a kde fanatic like i am you'll have to go through the graphics options and turn on and off stuff to see which stuff you can use and which ones you can't um but that's one of the nice things about kde is you have very fine control over the compositing um where you're in most in the uh mate and gnome and cinnamons you don't have as as fine control so that would be something to to play with yeah. Uh, by the way, on on SSDs, I just bought a 500 gig SSD for 230 dollars, less than 50 cents a gig. So yep. they're they're really dropping in price dramatically. Right, but 500 gig hard drive would be a little is a little steep if he's trying to keep it cheap. Yeah, yeah. I'm know, just I'm just saying that 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 500 gig SSD just a year ago would have been 500 dollars. Oh, at least. Yeah. If not more. So if you want something smaller, a 240 uh, gig or, or less, you could probably get that for 100 bucks, 150 at the most. Yeah, somewhere around there. At elementop.com slash Amazon. There you go. All right, moving right along to our next bit of listener feedback. Uh, and it comes from Dalton, who wonders if he needs a firewall. Says, hey guys, I like your show and it really grows on you in a good way. Uh, I brought a Chromebook and to my surprise, I could not find a firewall of any type, not even an app for Chrome. Uh, I know Linux has many good firewalls, but are any of the firewalls for Chrome? Are there any firewalls for Chrome? And why are people not talking about the lack of firewalls for a Chromebook? Um, I love your show about life after Linux. Keep up the good work. So, you know my thoughts about fire. Well, if you if you're a longtime listener, you know my thoughts about firewalls. I think they're overhyped. Um, I have never in my existence run a firewall on a Linux desktop device. I just I don't see the need for it. Um, I have run them on server devices that are out there serving stuff and prone to attack. So, and I think the Chrome developers are with me on that. It's a device that's designed not to do much. Right, you can totally reformat the thing in about twelve seconds. Um, it's designed to to access the web, uh, and it's designed to not really have much power inside. So I don't really know how much compromising it's even possible to do, uh, because the the super user who's who's running it can't do much. It's just a really restricted OS. Uh, so I think it's it's a non-issue. What do you guys think? You know, I mean. Chrome is designed to be web centric. It's pretty locked down. You're pretty limited on what you can do in comparison to a fuller fledged operating system. And so I'm with you. I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would use a Chromebook like in a public um, area like a Starbucks or whatever. But if you're at home, you're behind your, your router's laptop. And I think you would be good enough there to use it. See, I think the biggest thing with Chromebooks is it's like an Android device. So your Android phone and your Android tablets don't have firewalls either because there's no services running. They don't leave a web server running or an SSH server on uh, where your desktops have that opportunity to have those left on or you could have turned them on for one reason and forgot to turn them back off. So my standpoint has always been if you have services running, 
that would reach the inner, you know, reach the internal network of something like, um, maybe Samba shares or SSH, you need a firewall so you can restrict things. But if you're in a distro that doesn't have any services running, like, um, the Ubuntu's or Mint's, um, then you really don't need a firewall. So I think your Chromebook, be it more Android tablet-y and Android-phony type thing, um, you really don't need a firewall for Chromebooks. There you go. So all three of us agree, which doesn't often happen. Uh, that yeah, you- I'm kind of shocked. Is the world going to end now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, when all three of us it- agree, something's wrong, so you probably really do need one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, if you think about it in terms, he, he mentioned a, a web app. So what good would would a a firewall web app do anyway? It's only running in web app space. It's not running as yep. the root user. Um, it it would only, uh, the way Chrome sandboxes things, Chrome itself does, and then Linux even more so, um, there, there there's really almost no way. I, I'm not going to say no way. It's very difficult for one act one process to affect the actions of another process so a web app would be totally useless it would have to be something local but since you can't install local software it would have to come with the firewall uh installed yep. and turned on and since they didn't the chrome developers didn't do that i don't really even know if you could do it um so i'm sure you i'm sure you could if you really got down deep into a terminal and got it and be able to like but I know it's it. They make it so it's not easy to get into it that way. Um, I think you have to actually telnet or something to it through a, a particular. Oh, I remember reading something, but I, it's it's not easy, and it's definitely not for the faint of heart. And it wouldn't do you any good, you know. Like I, I like I was bringing up a little bit ago. It's just like your your phone and your your tablets. The Chromebook is meant to be a read only device and not a writable device. Okay, I think that covers it, and that is the last of our listener feedback. So uh, we'll move straight on to the tech news. Um, and I haven't looked at these, so I'm going to have to go with what Seth puts here. And he says that sometimes being a good guy is hard. Yes, um, it, this was just an interesting story where... This person, he's like a white hat hacker. He works for a security consulting company and his company got a gig with a university and they found malware on one of the university's web server or on one of the university servers that could be used to gain access to personal data of students and faculty. So his employer and the university, they failed to take action on the report and the vulnerability remained in place even after a data breach exposed more than 300,000 students and former students' social security number. So what he did was he's like, I'm tired of this. And so he, from his house, working over VPNs, he downloaded the personal data of members of the university security task force and posted um, posted them on uh, someplace. Uh, and then he emailed members of the task force anonymously. And then one day later, he's coming home and the FBI is all over his house. They like busted in his door. And so basically he reported the bug. Nobody took action to fix the issue. And so he forced their hands and then he got in trouble for it, got arrested um, and kind of doesn't work for that company anymore. So, you know, did he go a little too far? Probably. But 
if you're not going to do when a security company tells you, Hey, you've got malware on your system and hackers can use it to, um, to steal basically all of your information and you don't do anything. Why did you get the security company? Um, you know, it's not like a day later. It's like over a month later, it's still there. Here's my thing, uh, and and this is something that I've known for a long time. It doesn't matter what color your hat is, if you're doing illegal things, you're breaking the law. There, yeah. you know, there there are bounty hunters and and uh, private detectives that that are on the same side as the law who do illegal things in the the process. Um, and a white hat hacker is still a hacker. He's still accessing a system without permission and doing things that he's not supposed to do. So as much as I would like to have sympathy for the guy, I just don't. It's it's the it's the dangers of the job. You know, and I think it's kind of an entertaining moment here just for a second. Um yeah, it is a horrible thing that he did, but would he be chaotic good then if you're going to go <laughs> off of the D&D rules of things? I would say he's chaotic good. <laughs> well, you know, but here's the thing. It's not like he's some he was working he was hired by the company for security services. So he was merely pen testing. The network has part of his job descriptions. I mean, he was playing fast and loose in his hand, but I just wanted to kind of, you know, there's a lot of computer security in the news uh, currently with the Heartbleed stuff that, you know, the media is just butchering. Um, and, you know, Windows XP is over. So now it's free for all on the internet, this, but, you know, this story highlights the bureaucracy behind the breaches. Um, you know, yeah. hey, we've got this great software, and if you would merely turn on what you've already paid for and update it, then we wouldn't have these problems. But the bureaucracy doesn't want to move because of this and because of that. And so you get people who are trying to protect the users. They're trying to be trying and fight for the users. And the master computer program comes and squashes them like a bug. Wow. I fight for the users. <laughs> I'm, I don't even know how to respond to that. I'm just going to yeah. move right on to the next uh, bit of mail uh, or, or news story. HP says that if you got hacked, it's probably something you did wrong. And I couldn't agree more. Yes. Yeah. Um, their 2013 cyber risk report found that most security risk results from configuration errors rather than flaws in the application themselves. Um, and this article... To me, it did a really good job. You know, it, it seemed to be playing it pretty level here. Talks about there's no such thing as an invulnerable application. Um, but HP compiled data from over 2,000 applications scanned by HP Fortify on demand. And they report that 80% of the vulnerabilities discovered were not the fault of the application code itself. Um, they were things such as server misconfiguration. Improper file settings, uh, sample content, outdated software versions. Mark, you've talked before about troubleshooting. You set 777 and then went and had a kid and left it open to the net. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, where I worked, we got hacked because the version of the software we were running was five years old and like four versions behind the current one. And there was no security done on it. Uh, it was old before I started working there and it was got older as the day went on. So you can't blame, you know, you, it's like, you know, XP, sure that it, it came out, tons of vulnerabilities were found, but people didn't even think it would be used 
you know, it was introduced in a non-net centered world and yet we've become a net centric world. And so what worked whenever you were a desktop and occasionally access remote data doesn't necessarily work when you're always accessing remote data and occasionally accessing something on your desktop. So you can't really blame it all on bad coding or sloppy applications. It's, um, you know, it's like, Hey, if, if you're not going to turn a firewall on, what do you expect? So we gave you a firewall. You just didn't turn it on. So it's not our fault. You got hacked for not having a firewall. And, and just for the, in the, the sake of being complete, my wife had the kid. I, I didn't. Well, y'all had the kid, <laughs> yeah. you know. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, everybody does. I've I was just uh, last week looking at a, a a website for a company that I used to work with, and I was wanting to work with them again. And I went to their website, and they had a, a Joomla with standard Joomla content on it. Really, and uh, it was live on the web on their dot com URL. So somebody was was configuring a server and had just thrown up the the basic thing and, and either didn't know it was live or didn't care that it was live. Um, and so, you know, that, that sort of stuff happens all the time. And, and if you're a, you know, if you're a nefarious person, uh, it's pretty easy to take advantage of those things. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's lots of times where people do write, poor code and you know and hey if you would have actually compiled that you would have realized that that was stupid um you know and i don't want to let those guys off but then there's other times it's not the coder's fault that you put up uh you put up a web server and you didn't change the default administrator password uh and you know you didn't configure permissions you you can't blame the you can't blame the coder for that well you shouldn't blame the coder for that doesn't mean they don't yeah. Well, you can't honestly blame the coder for that. And uh, in a related story, you're only as good as your admin or root password. Yes. Um, you know, we've mentioned Kali before. It's like a it's like a Linux distro that pen testers love, penetration testers, white hat security mm-hmm. professionals. Um, and apparently the root password for it is T-O-O-R, which is root backwards. So... If you're going to use, you know, this is like Windows XP shipped with the administrator account turned on originally and a blank password. So regardless of what some somebody could have had a 400 digit, well, no, it wouldn't take that. But somebody could have a 68 digit, you know, uppercase, lowercase numbers and symbols with their own password. But yet to bypass that on a Windows XP machine, all you'd have to do is walk up and hit control alt delete twice, type in administrator, no password, hit enter and you're in. Um, well, the same thing with Linux distros, you know, we talk about how in order for this exploit to work, you have to run as root and gain whatever. Well, if you're not going to change the default root password, you know, then that's not the distro's fault. So, you know, whenever you're setting up an OS, you need to change the admin or root password and you need to make it something kind of hard. Simple advice. Very um, simple, but it works. So we talked a little while back about uh, Windows, uh, excuse me, Microsoft, uh, with their new um, Siri-like device called Cortana, and it, it took us down the rabbit hole of, of uh, AI. Well, now here's one for the Raspberry Pi. Huh. Yes, um, Jasper 
an open source Siri-like virtual assistant for the Raspberry Pi. Um, it's not going to be as polished. It sounds more like um, Joshua from War Games, apparently, than it does uh, a person. You know, would you like to play thermonuclear detonation? Uh, Global anyway. thermonuclear war. Global thermonuclear. I'm sorry. I haven't seen it in a long time. No, let's um, play chess. Maybe later. Let's play a good game like Global thermonuclear war. Right. <laughs> So, yeah, but anyway, and of course, you know, the Raspberry Pi is not a powerhouse of computing, but if you were going to set up like a home automation system, you know, where it's like, um, turn thermostat or, you know, simple commands and you're not going to be searching stuff on, on the internet could be all you need. Uh, but yeah, so Raspberry Pi. And I noticed one of our listener feedback today, he was talking about using, um, the Raspberry Pi to uh, catch his podcast well you know you can install jasper on that and you can make your um podcast play voice activated maybe and and who go. doesn't want to be captain picard walking in a room and saying <laughs> lights and then they come up decrease illumination 25 percent, and then they dim who doesn't want that every geek wants that um every geek wants to say computer and he goes uh, set temperature to 73 degrees. And so that's, that's what Joshua on the Raspberry Pi is good for. Yeah. I, I, uh, Jasper. Jasper. Yeah. Not Joshua. I, I just think it would be cool. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm probably going to have to break down and buy a Raspberry Pi. It's cheap enough not to, ex- not to, uh, trash my, uh, cheapskate sensibilities. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not uncommon for for me to be uh, in a car um, on my cell phone browsing the web, not while I'm driving, but in Atlanta, when you're on the interstate, you don't drive, you sit. Uh, mm-hmm. So I have lots of time uh, right. to be doing that sort of stuff. How would you like to install Firefox in your car? Well, if you drive a Tesla, you can do that. Yes, um, I'm sure most people have heard of Tesla Motors. They're the, um, you know, a lot of companies have an electric model automobile. Well, Tesla is an electric car company. They don't produce cars. At least I don't believe they produce cars that are powered by gas. All their cars are electric or powered via electricity. And apparently they use Ubuntu for some of their, um, I don't think they use it to actually run the car, but to do some of the navigation and other systems, it appa- it apparently is using Ubuntu for the infotainment displays. And this one guy uh, figured that out. He hacked it and uh, installed Firefox. And so now he has, you know, he has a smart car. He's one step closer to Kit than I am, dadgummit. Um, <laughs> What's interesting, though, it says in the article that the Tesla company was not happy about it and called it an, an industrial espionage. So that's an interesting thought. So but, hacking your own car is industrial espionage? That's what they say. Hmm. But if if you see, in the, and that's the thing, in the Apple model that is, of course, the greatest model ever developed by any civilization anywhere throughout the great space-time continuum. Um, that is the case. You are not, you know, you pay for the privilege of uh, touching something that someone else owns, and you better not leave a fingerprint when you swipe the keyboard or uh, you swipe the touchscreen. 
Um, but you know, in most sensible people who occasionally stumble over uncommon sense, we realize that I bought this. I'll do whatever the heck I want to, to it. And you know, maybe I want Linux mint and not Ubuntu, or maybe I'm crazy <laughs> and I want to stick crunch bang or something on it. So I Ooh. think he did something kind of cool. Way to go, dude. Way to hack your car. All right, I have to disrupt the show just a little bit. I just got an email. Uh, I, I never do this, uh, but this was too good not to go. So this is a little listener feedback that just happened, just came in from our good friend Joe. He says, Mark, I, I don't know where we go from here. From what I've learned about you from the podcast, we have a great deal in common. We're both church-going family men, computer enthusiasts. You're a tightwad, and I'm a severe cheapskate. You have a Honda Odyssey, and I wish I had a Honda Odyssey, aforementioned cheapskate barrier. We both enjoy bad movies and share a passion for smoked and cured meats that borders on the obsessive. But when I heard in last week's podcast that you didn't like Super Cyclone, I was shocked. It's like, I don't know you anymore. (laughs) At first, I thought that my hand was forced, that you're dead to me. Then I remembered that the first time I watched Sharknado, I only lasted 10 minutes before I couldn't stand it anymore. It took me months before I finished and enjoyed it on Netflix. Since then, I've watched it a couple of more times. That has to be it. You just have to get your mind right before you can watch Super Cyclone. You have to be in a mood for it. Surely after you watch it again without having seen Frozen a dozen times earlier in the week, you'll have a new appreciation for it. Let's hope so. <laughs> Regards, Joe. <laughs> That's awesome, Joe. Oh, Good email. Joe. Good email, Joe. Uh, all right. <laughs> we broke the show, but that was that was a break worth doing. Um, <clears throat> moving right along. Elementary OS hmm. is moving. What? I can't even make sense out of this. Seth, go. Okay. Um, go. Well, you know, elementary <laughs> OS, they're technically not really a free distro. It's one of those pay us whatever you want to download it. Oh, paying. Well, I was totally not reading that word right. All right. Go ahead. Okay. So anyway, you know, people have wondered, what are you doing with this money? Well, apparently they're like kind of doing a bounty program, but not just for bounties, also for, um, like bug fixes and developments. And so they're moving up into the ranks of actually paying developers to not only fix it's, they call it like that last 20% of the bugs that is kind of hard to do. Um, but also build out new features. So it's kind of a way to pay the long time people who have really put into making, uh, elementary OS a, um, a pretty polished looking distro, but also encourage people to develop. You know, there's lots of distros out there that are free and people love the passion, but you know, maybe if you want to try to break into, um, you know, distro, Oh, I forgot the word. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, distro maintenance. Um, yeah, that'll work. But, you know, maybe try to develop for um, elementary and you might make a little coin in your pockets. It's not like, you know, they're paying millions of dollars, but, you know, uh, payments range from 15 up to a couple of hundred, depending on what it is you do. So I just thought it was a neat story and it shows that, you know, there is some money out there for people who actually want to work in Linux. So I just went to the website and uh, and clicked the download and put $0, and it's downloading. So it's still available for free. Oh, okay. I, just, I, you know, I never tried that. Yeah. Huh. So it, it uh, now that I'm downloading it, I got to try it. Uh, but uh, So it's not required that you pay anything, but the website doesn't doesn't make it seem like that. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing... Um, 
Actually, no, I, my mistake. It says, uh, next generation of elementary OS is here. Lightweight and beautiful. All new apps. Refined look. New name your price or download for free. So you got the option. There's, I, it's, it's, it's light gray on a white background, but it actually has a link there that says download Luna for free. So yeah, totally doable. But I, I, I'm not, I'm fine with it. I, I think that it's okay to ask for money, um, even for open source stuff, um, because a lot of work went into it. And, and it's, that's not anti open source. Uh, lots of other Linux distros have sold, uh, their distros and that's legal. That's RMS approved. You're allowed to do that. But once the guy owns it, he can do whatever he wants with it, including making it available for free. Right. So there you go. I, I think it's a, a cool thing. If, if, if me giving them 10 bucks uh, will help, then I should do it, right? But Ubuntu has had a donation page forever, and so has Linux Mint, and I've never donated to them. So maybe putting it front and center like that will, will move people from, uh, from their apathy. Because it's it, the default price was ten bucks. If I like it, I'll probably go back and give them ten bucks. Yeah, and you know, and it might not be a bad thing because then you know, if if you were kind of compelled to give an amount, you might pick a distro and stick with it rather than I'm going to try this one. I'm going to try this one. Oh, here's the problems with this one. Here's the problems with that one. And you know, if we got rid of some of the distro hopping then maybe the communities would develop a little bit of strength as people played with it. And if there was a problem, they felt more ownership to help get that problem resolved, take the time to do a bug report, um, you know, test out a possible fix or something. Um, and it would make, you know, you still have the same number of people using Linux, but instead of little flies who just kind of come down and land and take off again, you got like deep divers who are in there uh, looking for the good of a distro. So yeah. I kind of like the model," said the guy who hasn't paid anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting layout. Um, it, it looks like it's based. Uh, we looked at Elementary OS before. Um, Isn't it the, the Mac-like one? Yep. Yeah, yeah. it's the Mac-like one that uses. Uh, it, it's very sim. It's using GNOME three as the back end. So uh, immediately, I like have a the- small issue with 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 it, but. <laughs> But if they have if they have put in the work to to overcome the the shortcomings of of GNOME three, then fine. Yeah, well, that's why I think I'm going to end up downloading this and VMing it just to see to play with it again, because I know the last time I played with it, I wasn't insulted by it, but it wasn't the bestest thing ever. So maybe I'll I'll take a look at it again and see what I think of it, because you know I really don't want to do Gen two, so. <laughs> <laughs> well i've i've got it actually i paused the download but i i had started downloading and i'll go ahead and finish that and uh we'll we'll put it on my laptop here and and we'll see what happens um uh i we may both become lovers of it it it's it will be interesting to see I, i'm not a fan of the the way max do things i don't enjoy that interface and so far the the linux versions i've seen that try to emulate it did all the things i didn't like on the Mac. So, uh, you know, we'll see if elementary OS does as well. So of all the messages that you expect to get from a PC manufacturer, the following is probably not high on the list. Sony sends out a message saying, stop using your laptop. Whoa. Yes. The new VioFit 11A laptop. This is like a windows hybrid kind of convertible thing. 
Um, it has a serious battery issue and it can actually burst into flame. So if you own a VioFit 11A, um, one, you're one of the few because it never sold a whole lot. Um, kind of a running theme with most Windows 8 tablets, but, um, there is an issue where it just, it has a bad battery and, you know, Last decade, especially, there were tons of uh, laptops with bad batteries out there. But, um, you know, there was an issue with Lenovo earlier. But yeah, don't, um, don't use your laptop if you have a VioFit 11A. Um, you know, unless, uh, unless maybe you want to, uh, go out in a flaming inferno because it could melt or whatever. Um, yeah. And, and again, battery recalls are not unusual, but they, they melt or they get on point. I've never, never seen one worn of bursting into flames. Um, yeah, that's, just, that's a new one. Wow. And there's a call out in this article that I don't actually see in the article. It's just one of the big call outs. It says Sony is pulling out of the PC industry. Um, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me that they're focusing on mobile because that's their strength. Uh, but uh, you know, Sony hasn't really been a valid competitor in the laptop and PC industry for a long time. You know, there yeah. was a time when Sony was considered um, maybe not the best Windows, but one of the highest quality. It was like, you know, Sony was uh, the Wintel's answer to Mac because they were the really the first one to come out with the pretty looking computers. And they kind of helped get rid of that de facto beigey white box thing um you know they came out with some um black and purple cases and things uh they were really the first ones to do that but yeah now they are actually selling their pc division to uh japan industrial partners um so they will continue it's kind of like when ibm sold their computer business to lenovo lenovo kept the thinkpad line um that's kind of like uh this thing they'll still be called bios but they just won't be sony bios they'll be jip bios japan industrial partners jip hmm interesting okay and next uh, uh it's been a big week um for security news in fact we may end up just talking about this for the rest of the show yeah uh, but we'll see but before we go into what's bad about security these days uh google is doing something good in terms of security Yes, they, um, I guess it's been about a year ago. They came up with this process called verify apps. And what it did was whenever you downloaded an app kind of outside the play store, it scanned the app to see if it was, um, doing malware like behavior. You know, is it like sending out text messages, uh, you know, or calling, you know, pay numbers or whatever like that? Well, now they've done this thing. Uh, where they will continually scan to see if the apps are behaving the way they're supposed to. And one of the reasons this is a big deal is sometimes people, um, I don't know if it's a common tactic anymore, but at one point it was fairly common for people who did the malware type apps is give you an app that was something, say, like a flashlight. And all it would be would be it would just be a flashlight. It would be a way to turn on either your front screen or the camera if you had it. But then a few months later or a few weeks later, there would be an update to that app 
that it might still do a flashlight, but now it hijacked the advertising or, you know, it now accessed your contact list or something like that. So what, what Google is doing, um, in the Android world is now they have this app scanning system turned on continually that will make sure that kind of the app stays the app you downloaded and it doesn't mutate into something else. I, I think this is great things. Uh, and I'm sure Apple has something like it um, because they have they have deactivated apps in the past uh, that have uh, that have updated. But yeah, it's a good thing. It's now they're monitoring the calls that the app makes, and so I'm sure they have some sort of database that says this app is a phone app, uh, a flashlight app. Uh, but now it started reading contact information. Let's right. let's look into that. And so there, I'm sure there's a little. Um, Python script because Google loves Python that's uh, running somewhere uh, in the in the background that doesn't. I think it's a great thing as long as it doesn't hamper performance because most Android geeks would rather be risk risk safety and not have their performance hampered. Uh, but right. having said that, while all the geeks are are firmly in the Android camp, not all Android users are geeks. It is it has become the OS of grandma, mm-hmm. right? And that's why I think this is a good thing. This isn't the silver bullet that is going to end malware um, in the mobile platform, but it's one of those things. I think it 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 cuts off, in my mind, one attack vector, or I don't know if it cuts it off, but it makes one attack vector a lot harder to access than it used to be, and that's never a bad thing in security. Okay. Can't say much more than that. And so this next one is not so much one uh, article as a bunch of articles about the news of the week. And, and I'm going to have to confess my ignorance to this. My day job has been keeping me uh, busy 75 and 80 hours for the last few weeks. Um, and I am way behind on everything that isn't my job. Um, and so I don't even know what this is. I only know that it exists. So, guys, educate me on what is Heartbleed. Okay, well, the first link that will be in the show notes under the Heartbleed section, I think, does a great job of explaining what Heartbleed does. Um, and it kind of uses a cartoon, and I'll just kind of go through the cartoon. Um, it's like if I'm talking to someone and uh, I say, server, um, tell me the word potato and it's six letters. So then the server goes back potato, which is six letters. And then this person says, you know, server, are you still there? Tell me bird in four letters. So the server says bird in four letters. And then he thinks and he goes, if you're still there, say hat, but tell me 500 letters. So what happens is the server replies hat and then the next 500 letters worth of the instruction set that could include things like the session keys used, um, for secure websites, it could be username and password for maybe not that person, but someone else who is accessing the server at the same time. So, you know, this isn't one of those, oh my gosh, I, uh, the server is affected by, uh, heart bleed. So therefore my stuff is automatically at risk, but it's saying that the server gives up random bits of information in addition to what is requested. Now, sometimes that random information is useless gibber. Um, sometimes that random information is a username or a password 
or both are a portion or a session key or a security key. Um, or a certificate number or a certificate yes. information. Right. Th- I mean, Mark, do you think that explains it to where somebody who, you know, I well, mean, I, I, yeah, I get it. I, I've, I've seen that XKCD, uh, uh, comic and I, I understand the basic premise of it, but so it's a, it's a probe attack. So you have a properly secured server. What's the vulnerability? That's here, the question. Um, here, open, I'll, I'll try and, I'll try and spin okay. it down. What it is is an open SSL, um, glitch, so to speak. Uh, most open SSL or secure connections are done through TCP. So they have the three handshakes in order to, to make the connection valid. This is a connection through UDP. So there is no handshake. It's, it's, cause they, they, when you're using UDP to, to do an, uh, a secure connection, they have this thing called heartbeat. And that's how the doors stay open for the, the secure connection is the heartbeat transfers back and forth, which is the, if you're there, reply cat. If you're there, reply hat. That, that thought in the, the comic. So because it's UDP and not TCP, there's the issue where there's no handshake. So there's no traffic saying that Johnny is the, here's Johnny's IP address. So you can track it back in server logs because there are no logs for UDP traffic. Right. So that's where the issue is, is the fact that when they put this, when they, the, the people who wrote the open SSL, um, package and added the UDP trap, the UDP, um, heartbeat ability, that's when the glitch showed up. And that was two years ago. So, so the idea two- is that you're checking to see if a server is still alive. That's what this heartbeat function is supposed to do. Still alive and running. Well, it's still alive and still connecting with the secure connection. Okay, so you because you establish a secure connection first. Well, well no, yet, uh, asking, that's not the case with UDP, right? Yeah, you're asking for a secure connection. You're saying, "Server, are you there?" Reply with cat or reply with a, a the a reply. So, so you feed it the data that you want it to spit back, basically, yeah. And it it grabs that UDP packet and responds with a second UDP packet that simply is a regurgitation of what you told it. Correct. But so you be- can force a buffer overflow by excelling, exceeding the number, the value in characters of the data that you're asking for back. Correct. Okay, I got it. It's so, a classic buffer over, overflow flaw. It, it is. It is. And it, 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 it's not every open SSL because it, it, there was, like I said, it's a two-year-old exploit, but not everybody moved to that new SSL um, certificate when it was released. So that's where the issue came from. Okay. So uh, just a just a let's let's give a little background there. If you're listening to this and and you don't know what a buffer overflow is, let me uh, give you a little background there. It's it's the most common, well, one of the most common ways for hackers to do bad things. So your computer has these little chunks of memory that it calls a buffer. I can't handle all the information coming in right now. So I'm going to store little bits of it for use later. Uh, and you define a buffer size in your code. You say, set aside 64K that I'm going to use for a scratch pad 
That's all it is. Just a scratch pad so that you can write things down and, and refer back to them. So you look back at your buffer and it, and it gets over, it gets overwritten. It's, it's not carefully managed. It's not a big deal. But what can happen is you can overflow that buffer and you can, and you can, uh, push more data into it than it was designed to handle, which forces it to give back more data than you wrote down. So you say you wrote down six numbers, but if you overflow it, it can give you back um, the six numbers that you gave it plus a big chunk of RAM. And so once you get a hold of that RAM, there's all sorts of things you can see. So you, the first thing that happens in a buffer overflow is usually a crash. And a, a hacker will do just, you know, just start running random bits of code until he generates a crash. Once he generates a crash, he knows he's on to something. So then he starts to figure out a way to manipulate that crash. So the buffer overflow is is like top two tools in the hacker's toolkit. And this is just a version of that. You're sending uh, an excess of data from what the system is expecting, and it gives you back what you told it to give back, which is more than than you gave it. And so it's it's pretty random what you're going to get back. But considering that all of these are secured connections – Potentially, everything that you get back is a gold mine. Um, so you're you're pushing more data than than the system can handle. It's giving you back um, as much as you told it to give you, and you might get something good. You might not. And there apparently have been some uh, proofs of concept where guys have been testing this thing and uh, and have been able to 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 really suss out some some valuable data. You um, being very persistent with these uh, with this heartbleed attack. Yeah, and from what I've been, from what I've been reading on it, um, it's only, like I said, certain open SSL um, packages were affected by this. If your server was running Microsoft's ISS protocol for your secure connections, it's not vulnerable to this. But there are a lot of people on the internet, a lot of big companies that use open SSL and did upgrade and were using the affected version. Um, it's people like Yahoo and Google. And, um, well, there, there, there's a handful of them that are still, uh, affected by it. So right now they're saying if, unless there's been notice saying to change your stuff because they fixed their flaw, there's, it's a pointless fix right now to, to change your passwords. Right. Uh, but it, like Yahoo and Google, I know for sure they've been fixed. So you should change your passwords there. And then, as for any of the people that are listening to the show that have LastPass, LastPass has a, in their security check for your passwords in LastPass, it will check against known sites that have the exploit to tell you if the, if the, the site has been fixed or if it's still in the wait to change your password. Yeah. Um, one that the last time I read my check was Woot. Woot was, uh, affected and is at the last time I checked, which was Friday afternoon, it was still non, it still wasn't fixed. It still said to wait. So definitely, if nothing else, go through and, and maybe set up LastPass just long enough to have it scan the sites that you use in order to check to see if any of those sites are still affected. Yeah, so that's how I first heard about this was an email from LastPass uh, telling me about Heartbleed. And, but that's a play on words from Heartbeat, by the way. So it's a heartbeat to see if it's still there. It's a bleeding heart. And uh, there's an article here in uh, uh, The Verge that Seth has linked to where a hacker uh, by the name of Fedor Edunti, uh, Edutni uh, says that he has been able to uh, uh, 
acquire the um, private keys of a company called Cloudflare's servers. They they put something up. Cloudflare put something up and challenged people to do it to because their belief was that the the data you get back is too random and too arcane to actually be valuable. Well, this guy is just a Twitter post. Um, so we, you know, it's not all that, uh, um, sussed out yet. Uh, but, um, Oh, wait, here we go. There's an update that I just saw there. Uh, the cloud fair now states that two hackers, Fedor Edutny and Ika Matila, both managed to obtain the private SSL keys. So being persistent and being clever, these guys have managed to pull the SSL keys off of the server. What that means is they now own the server. Yep. They can, well, they can, they can masquerade. get... Yeah, they, they can get, get unfettered access using the SSL keys, and they can be anyone, including the administrator, and they can look at whatever. So that's why it may not do you any good to change your passwords yet, uh, because if if somebody can, if it's still vulnerable and you change your password, it's not a big deal. They just go get your new password. Right. So you wait till the vulnerability has been patched, then you change your password. Uh, but it may not be just your password, right? It's the rest of your data. That is there, but of course, uh, LastPass is interested in passwords. Um, so you change that, and but this this is potentially a very big deal for determined hackers. It's not yes. for the casual hacker. Well, and like I just went over to LastPass, double check the sites that I I know that are are uh, affected. So Yahoo, Credit Karma, Dropbox, all are been up have been fixed, and they've reissued their certificates. So they are safe to go change. Um, Facebook just did theirs. Um, so they're ready to go update. Um, who else? Uh, Netflix there, they were affected and they reissued all their certs and everything. So they're ready to go update. Uh, Woot is ready to go for updating. Google's done. GoDaddy's done. Um, any, I guess the, the ones that are being shown right now in my list of sites that I need to wait for is openoffice.org. Indiegogo, minus.com, and the fedoraproject.org. Um, they still have vulnerabilities that they're patching. So everybody else pretty much, everyone should probably be fixed by now. Um, but definitely double check before you change your passwords. Yeah. And while this has only been known about for, you know, what, just about a week now that there's some chatter on the web that place people knew about this beforehand. But if you've been on vacation and you didn't have any tech with you and you haven't access, say, Facebook, either through a website, and this is something people don't realize. If you go on your phone, your phone is connecting over the web and you're vulnerable the same as if you're logging in through a website. So that's something in people's minds. They might not make that connection, but if you haven't, if you haven't logged on in since this became uh, common knowledge, then you're probably okay because it doesn't like pull the server for random information. It get just gets the stuff that's happening. So if you're not making a connection, then your information is not in the RAM for people to possibly get. So that's one of the reasons that in some ways the coverage was overblown because it, you know, if, if you run in, if you're just, if you're using like say Firefox or Chrome or Internet Explorer and you're just going to some website and you're not signing in and you don't have automatic sign on turned on, then again, it doesn't matter because you're not giving any session information. Somebody might get that this website was accessed from this IP, but big deal. That doesn't do anybody any good. 
So. Okay. So there you go. There's a, a heartbleed in a nutshell. Um, and like I said, I was, uh, Chris had to educate me on what it was, but uh, it's it's a big deal that currently we can't do a lot about. We we put a lot of trust in our server admins. And and it's just an inherent thing, right? You trust the guy at the bank not to pocket your money. You trust the the server admin um, at your bank's website not to to pocket your password. And then uh, you know, like like we said earlier, eighty percent of of malware and and hacks are really the user's fault. This is a case where it was a a code uh, a malformation. And that has been known about Seth. You said for two years, right? But um, nobody well, no, did it, anything about it. it. It didn't come to light until this last week. The versions that have affected are like two years old. And this is one of the weird cases where if somebody was using SSL or open SSL when they set up their website two and a half years ago and never updated it, then this ver- this bug wouldn't affect them. So here is one of those rare cases where a lazy admin provided an extra <laughs> layer of security. for. So, you know, basically just disregard what we said earlier in the show and be lazy and don't worry about it. So, you know, it's one of those weird things that happen. And here's um, another story. You know, we talk a lot about Steam OS. Um, well, while Debian, the Wheezy version has a patch for this that is uh fixes the issue um steam which is based on debian uses an older version of debian that and so this issue is still an issue if you use steam os so uh and because of how steam layers on debian you can't easily get to uh, the actual debian to update it yourself so you're waiting for steam to issue um to integrate that patch into their overlay of debian so, all right. And just in case we didn't have enough bad news, uh, patent reform law took a big hit in the U.S. Senate. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Um, base, yeah. I, man, it just kind of, it's kind of crappy. Um, basically, you know, that Microsoft Apple dominant thing, they got in there and just used a uh, FUD on, people who don't know anything you know the older congressman who is like you know like some doctor or ceo who's not a technology person they simply don't know and they listen to these giant corporations who have just so much money to throw at them and hire smooth talking people who make it sound you know they use facts they use truths to tell a lie and just basically gutted out the proposed um patent reform and so there will be a bill passed but basically the bill is just going to kill the tree uh in order to print it it's not really going to do anything except make it harder to uh reform the industry um at least that's my editorial comment on it i i don't i don't even want to say anything i'm just too disgusted (laughs) Uh, this this is a problem that it's going to work itself out I'm just impatient for that to happen. Um, and I'll just leave it at that. But, I mean, will it work itself out? I it mean- will. The, 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 we see these things all the time. These models die or, or they get replaced. Um, and it, it's going to happen. The, I mean, there were major lawsuits when the, the photocopier 
was first invented, the mimeograph machine, even before the photocopier. Um, when when uh, the movable press went uh, replaced the 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 static press, there were it was a big deal. There's always uh, precedent for this sort of stuff, but you can't stop people from using new technologies with legislation. You can't legislate the death of technology. Um, right. And so it's going to work itself out. We're going to figure out that you that patents don't count for certain things and do count for other things. And you know, I just I just want it to be now. I want I want for example. Here's a great example. Bought a new DVD of a, a Disney movie this week. I own it. It's mine. I can't rip it because my the my favorite ripper hasn't caught up with the the ripping uh, the encryption yet. And this this frustrates me. It's my legal right to have a backup copy of something I purchased. That is well established legal precedent. But because every consu- uh, every uh, company treats their consumers like criminals, I can't do it. So I can't put this new thing that my family wants to watch on the media center so that we can watch it. And I don't have a DVD player in the house. So essentially, it's useless to me. I mean, I can throw it on a laptop and watch it, yeah. but I can't watch it on the media center because of stupid regulations like this and i just i want them to go away so that i can watch the thing i paid for well that's just like everyone is you know the 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 whole you're not paying for you're not technically buying software you're licensing it for use that that's that's a bunch of garbage in my opinion too um i I don't know how many times i've seen that written that oh yeah you can you can do anything you want with the software, but you can't, you don't own it. It's still property of whoever. Yeah. Okay. We're already getting long. Do we even want to do this, this bit here? Yeah. Okay. We will. Um, I just talked myself into and out of it just like that. <laughs> uh, but we do first have to do uh, this week in uh, history because this is something near and dear to the gooey kid's heart. Yes. Um, you know, I mean, I got to give it up to Apple. Uh, April 11th, 1976. So while the U.S. in the year it celebrated its bicentennial, the Apple One was created uh, this week in history, April the 11th, 1976. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, it they did a lot to revolutionize computing. Now, was this uh, this was after the Lisa? Uh, no, the Lisa was um, when Steve Jobs kind of set up the other company. So this would have been like oh, the, the Apple One was the wooden one. Yes, okay. the very first one. Very first. So when when Woz and um, Jobs were like, you know mere babes wet behind the ears kind of thing yeah so that it was a kit um and they they sold it as a kit or you could was would build you a wooden case for it if you want to do this is the point where they were selling them out of their garage uh one or two at a time right uh, but before they did that it had to be created uh, right. april the 11th 1976 um you know and Here's the thing. They're like 
you know, the oldest computer company that still sells computers, uh, you know, cause IBM doesn't sell computers. Uh, they still sell some servers, but only because they haven't figured out how to make money doing absolutely nothing yet. Um, <laughs> you know, in HP, they started out doing calculators and they've tried yep. to get out of the computer business, but realized they weren't as good at doing nothing as IBM was. So they better stay in the computer business. So yeah, right. Apple, uh, they're still around. All right, well, now let's talk about somebody who is in business and who is good at what they do, and that's our good friends over at the LinuxAcademy.com. You've heard us talk about them ad nauseum. You know what they do, but I'm going to tell you anyway because they pay me to. Um, (laughs) LinuxAcademy.com is a place where you can go from being a Linux novice to a Linux administrator just by studying their stuff. That's a big, bold statement. How can I say that? Because people are doing it and have done it. Um, they are now uh, EI uh, e, uh, CompTIA certified. They are now um, uh, LPI certified as uh, content providers. Uh, so they they have been vetted. Their stuff is real, and people know it. And so if it's it's one of the the recommended places online to go and learn about Linux. They do this by the way of of uh, PDF uh, st- of, of video YouTube. Uh, Good grief. Training videos accompanied with PDF study guides. So it's the best of both worlds. If you're a visual learner, you can watch the video. If you're a, a, a guy who likes to read, you've got the study guide along with it. And and that's not just all you get. You get your, your uh, st- uh, quizzes and practice exams and a lesson browser so that you can pick what you want to do. But the, the whole site is organized in what they call modules. And a module is, is simply an objective. So my objective for this module is to uh, be uh, LPI level one certified. So I know something about Linux now, but I I couldn't pass that test right now. I'm going to do that module. So you go to their dashboard, you log in, it shows you that module, it shows you all the components in it, it shows you how many hours they expect you to take based on, uh, of course, they know how many hours the the video is, but also an assessment of how long it takes people to take the test. You do that, you work your way through it, you start, start at the beginning, you work your way through the end. You take the practice exam. You pass the practice exam. You will pass the official exam. That's not a guarantee, but that's something that I feel confident in saying because so far they have a 100% success rate. Everybody who's taken their LPI module, everybody who's passed their practice exam has gone and gotten their certification, 100%. That's, that's, that says something right there. They, they are proven uh, in their success. Not only do they have the the content, the videos, the PDF study guides, but they also have this whole community uh, there available to you. They've got their forums and and the trainers and the teachers. They're in the forums and they really are responsive to the the community. They they listen to feedback. They're people who make a suggestion. Hey, I, I'm not understanding this. I'd like to see uh, an an extra lesson on this. Within a few weeks, that exists. They're they're actively looking. They're growing their content right now. Um, Anthony told me that they they expect by the end of the summer to have doubled their content. Uh, wow. They're getting uh, they 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 have some things that aren't live yet, but they're they're getting into. Um, uh, of course, they always already have the Amazon Web Services, but they're branching out into other things that uh, I'm not going to talk about yet because they're not ready. But they they're they're really growing beyond just the Linux server administrator, and you get all this stuff for one low price, and it is a low price. I'm not kidding. How about a dollar? Give them a dollar and you get a two week trial. So you can walk around, test everything, take the, watch the, the, uh, the videos, download some of the PDF study guides, even take a practice quiz, get your feet wet, feel how it, uh, how you like it, see if this is going to work for you. 
and they're so confident that it is going to work for you that there there are almost no limitations to what you can do during that two days. Uh, excuse me, two weeks during that fourteen days for only a dollar. That just shows them that you're serious. Uh, you got to give them. You know, you got to have a credit card, and and you got to at least be willing to pay them a dollar to look around. But once you get in there, and you're pretty sure that you're that you're going to stick around, and I know you are. You can get started for $25 a month. If you want to pay month to month and you're not sure you're going to stick with them, $25 a month. But if you want to buy a bigger chunk, the price goes down. That's the case in everything. Volume equals less money. So you can get it down. If you buy an annual subscription, you can get it for $19 a month. So $19 a month times 12 months, couple hundred bucks for a year of the best learning you're going to find anywhere on the internet. That's not just me saying that. That's CompTIA saying that. That's um, uh, the Linux Professional Institute saying that. They are good at what they do. 20 bucks a month. Why would you not do that? So when you do go there, and I know you're going to, uh, use the referral code EverydayLinux in the uh, box and let them know that we sent you there. Yeah, Mark, you're really not going to beat that price. Um, I found a company, and I'm not going to mention, again, I don't mention names for this, but uh, $99 a month, or you could bundle for a year for only $999. Yeah, a thousand bucks. Yeah. Yeah. So that's to get, you know, Anthony and the guys, they're cheap in price only. Very high quality in what they've done, broken down into easy to use digestible segments. It's not like you know, there's some professor droning on and on, and you're afraid to ask a question. Pause, rewind. The lessons are short. You can pick up what you need. You're like, I didn't, I didn't get that. I'm going to go through it again. So you can watch it again until you learn it. Real world examples, not dry book knowledge. And not only that, I didn't even mention it, but you get they set you up with these virtual servers in in Amazon's cloud service, so they boot up and, and shut down virtually instantaneously. And you can actually play with it. So you're not just watching videos and doing paperwork. You're actually doing real work on real servers. Um, And that's invaluable. And I don't know. I'm not going to say you don't get that anywhere else. I don't know. I don't know anywhere else where you get that added bonus. Well, and and they also, you know, they they teach the the correct way of doing things. You know, not just the GUI way. What the command line way, the correct way? Yeah, the command line way. Because if you're going to be a Linux administrating, chances are you're not going to be in the same place as the servers. You know, so why learn the keyboard and mouse driven way when an SSH you can fix things ten times faster and be more productive with your with your administration life? Yeah, and that's actually one of the first lessons is going out and getting putty and getting it on your machine and configuring a connection. So, you know, that's where they start. Um, If you know how to watch a a YouTube video, you have all the prerequisites to learn how to administer a Linux server. Again, that's not going to happen overnight. You know, they're not out, they're not pumping out paper tigers. But if you want to learn and you know how to go to YouTube and search for Weird Al's All About the Pentiums, then um, you know how to get started and to learn. And you can start the process that, you know, will make you a very capable and competent Linux admin. Okay, I think that's enough. We will move on now to uh, a, a quick five minutes. Uh, I promised you last week that we would do a show about um, uh, open source cross-platform uh, VPNs. <clears throat> then I got sucked into my crazy work, and I didn't do anything. So these guys, um, 
let's face it, they fell back on what they already knew. They didn't do any research, but that's okay. Here's maybe some things you don't know about. Starting with OpenVPN.net. Probably the standard in open source cross-platform VPNs. Yeah, it's pretty much the de facto. If you're running Linux of any form or even most of the... uh, high-end firewall configurations, you know, like Untangle or any of those guys, they pretty much all use OpenVPN. Um, it's just kind of the de facto standard. Yep, and uh, it's uh, available on Windows, Linux, Mac, Android, and iOS. Yeah, it's it's the base that almost everything is built upon. So, And it's tried and true. I mean, it's it's not the fastest thing on the planet, but it also forces you to do good things so it's definitely the first place i would look if you're going to learn what an open v, uh, what a vpn is and how it actually does its job well let's talk a little bit about that what is a vpn vpn stands for virtual private network so it's a, it's a way of creating a private network on the public network the public network yep. being the internet so you have an encrypted connection between you and some other box or some other piece of software. Yep, it's a pipe. And, and if you, I always think, go ahead, Chris. I was going to say I always think of a VPN as a pipe. You are directly connecting from you to whatever machine is configured to read the receiving end of it, and it's a a you know solid. Um, I always like to think of the Mario green pipes I think <laughs> VPN because it's a pipe from one spot. You warp through the Internet, through an encrypted tunnel to the other spot. Um, it's just how I've always in, in, in my mind envisioned a VPN. And with the exception of speed, because you're going over your uh, Internet connection instead of your LAN connection, your computers don't know the difference. That's Correct. the beauty of it. It can it can be an IP address in your same addressing scheme. You can do standard uh, file and printer sharing. You can do um, it, it's it is a device on your network, but it may be in Singapore while you're in Austin, Texas, um, yeah. and that's that's the beauty of a VPN. And it's encrypted traffic, so it goes out over the internet. Um, and yeah, it, a pipe is a good analogy of how it functions. But really, what happens is it translates it into gibberish. So that anybody can snoop on it as much as they want, but it won't mean anything to them. Um, yep. And so that gibberish gets reassembled into something that makes sense on the other end. It's a great tool that almost everybody uses, whether they know they're using it or not. So if you've ever used something like um, uh, LogMeIn or Join.me or any of those services, you're using a VPN, uh, just uh, their particular um, uh, rendition of it. Yep. And uh, so the next one, speaking of log me in, is Hamachi, uh, which uh, Hamachi was a an open source project, I think, or maybe just a free project that is now one, yeah. that is now under the purview of uh, log me in. They own it, bought it. I don't know how that works, uh, but it's it's now no longer a free product uh, as it used to be, uh, but it is. It was sort of the the standard for ease of use uh, for a long time. Yeah, it was. It's kind of what everyone hoped for when they when they started playing with VPNs and the for your personal connections. Um, it was so simple to set up um, a couple clicks here, a couple clicks there. Your VPN tunnel started, and you were done. There, there was almost there was almost zero configuration. Hey, Seth. 
tell us a little you bit know, about setting up a VPN the hard way. Because I know you have some experience with that, where you tell your firewall where to go, and the other guy tells their firewall what to go, and you don't have the same firewall. How long can oh that my take? Gosh. Dude, you know, honestly, it can take it can take a week. Um, I, I had a job, a company, a company that does something very similar to what Mark does now, and my job was like I was like the IT guy, so I didn't do the programming. I did the. We got to talk to you know, hospital in XYZ. And so I'm on the phone with their guy and he's like, okay, I've got this model firewall and I don't say it, but I'm thinking, what the heck is that? I've never heard of it. So I had a, I had a Cisco VPN concentrator and they had some random piece of garbage basically and couldn't, you know, it was like, okay, here's what we're going to do on my page. This is number one. So I'm going to configure this setting for this. And he goes, hold on a second. Uh, on my thing, that's not called that. It's called this. And I have to go to this page to configure it. So he would do that. And it would be his turn. He'd say, okay, next on my page is this. And let's configure it that. And I go, nope, that's not called that. That's called this. And I have to go over here to this page and configure just the opposite because they think different. Yeah, it's and, not yes, it's no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then one time, the hardest one was... I was dealing with the guy who had the exact same equipment as me and we would go through the thing and it wouldn't work and it wouldn't work and it wouldn't work. And I kept telling him your settings are wrong. No, they're not. And so he called Cisco. He actually called Cisco and we had a conference call with me and him and Cisco and he's look and the Cisco guys remoted into his session and he goes, that's not what you have. You added a space to the end of the line. Uh, and so, you know, this configuration key of some random numbers that, you know, let's try a Z. Oh, I'm looking at a Y. There's a seven, you know, and at the end of like this 20 digit thing, he had just had a space. And so it took us a week for him to realize he had a space at the end of the key that we had set up. It is a pain, pain, pain in the butt to set those up because they're they're so – and again, this was five or six years ago, so they've become a lot simpler now. But they can still – when you get into the nitty-gritty and the point-and-click doesn't work and you have to bust into the advanced settings to look up stuff – it gets to be a pain in the butt. So the, but, uh, essentially how that works is you tell your firewall this range of IP addresses. Anybody tries to access this range of IP addresses, send it out to this IP address on the Internet. Then mm-hmm. on the other end, that thing has to say, all right, listening for anything from this, you got to send it to this range of IP addresses for devices over here. And it sounds simple, but it's not. However, the guys over at Freeland.org say that they have made it simple. And uh, Chris, what do you think? Uh, you know, and I've played with this a little bit. It's one of those things that I want to play with it more, but I don't have the des- super desired need for such a thing. Um, but this is set up in a way that it's similar to Hamachi. You have a client that you install and turn on, and it is automatically set up to automatically go out and seek out other things. So this is one of those choices that when it, the thing that I like about it the most is the fact that it does multiple types of configurations without having to, you know, drive yourself crazy. It has the, the typical client server model, which is what open open VPN is like. So you have a 
server firewall thing that does the negotiation and then everybody connects to the server and that's how everyone sees each other. That is the typical way of setting this up. The other way is what's called a peer-to-peer where like for the three of us in the show, we could set up our own VPN network with the three of us. And so that is a peer-to-peer network where there's no server involved at all. So if any one machine goes down, the other two can still talk. The third option that they do is called a hybrid where they have the server and the peer-to-peer. So all the people involved can either talk to each other or talk through the server. So personally, I think this thing, the the freelance system is, at the last time I've played with it, is the best solution out of them all. And the fact that it's cross-platform, it works pretty much with the, all the operating systems on the planet. Uh, if you don't run Deb, if you're running Debian, you're pretty safe. But if you're running anything else, you're going to have to compile it yourself. Um, but I haven't been able to find out through the support documents if they have an Android model as well. Let's see. If I click the download link... What do I see? I see Linux, I see Mac OS, I see Windows. I don't see anything for mobile. Right, but I, but if it's just a, you need to type in in your VPN client on any any of the VPN right. clients on Android or iPhone, the, the information, I don't know if you can connect to it. That's the only thing I haven't played with yet. But as far as connecting in a peer-to-peer system, that works almost stupid simple. Um, I did it on my. I have a. I set one up to play with it for a little bit for this show. Uh, a connection here at my house and at my work site, and it was like, you know, thirty seconds, and I had a connection set up, and it was just like I was sitting at my work desk, and I was able to RDP in. I mean, it was pretty simple. So, do you have to know the IP addresses at both ends? Yes, you do have to know at least that much. Yeah. Cool, but that's a pretty minor thing because all you have to do is just, you know, go to IP Chicken and then you have it. Yeah, that was the beauty of things like Amachi. It figured all that out for you, um, and it still does if you want to pay for it. Um, yeah, it's the super no configuration thing. I think they're I think they're working to get it better. Um, at least the last couple of times I when I set it up, it wasn't straightforward and point click simple. But that might be because of how I have my firewall set up. Because I got my my firewall pretty well locked down, so you know if you're just running through a typical uh, home router or coffee shop's Wi-Fi connection, you'd probably find it, it it might be even easier than that. Okay, and I think that's all we have to say about uh, VPNs. Any any other comments, guys? Well, one thing um, they've become a lot more common, and a lot of like wireless routers and stuff that you buy at the store now will have some type of True. VPN configuration with them. And if we ever get back and get the uh, DDWRT going, that's one of the services you can configure in it. So yep. you don't really need an extra box anymore to do it. It's become, in some ways, an appliance uh, or it's a software add-on to things that are already there. Yeah, so, and yeah. all of those, I'm, I feel pretty confident in saying, are running OpenVPN. Yeah, the, I'm sure most yeah. of them will be. Uh, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's a thing, you know. As broad- broadband becomes more uh, prevalent, I mean, you obviously couldn't do this over a one megabit connection. You couldn't do it over a dial-up. So they weren't really a thing. 
but now that everybody has you know five six seven megabits um available to them (laughs) um it becomes something that's a lot more possible so you could certainly support your family um you know as if you were at their house uh and that's that's one of the uh drawbacks i mean the uh, attractors of it (laughs) yes well and there's there's also other things out there where you could pay for a vpn service so you can like if you wanted to be on the internet but show like you're being in the coffee shop in london so you can get the bbc they you can purchase a vpn where your your exit nodes are in different countries so you could bypass um geographic no i guess geographic limitations thank you limitations by using a vpn um a lot of the you know like when there were the big riots the vpns were how people would get on the internet in the like Turkey and, and places that have been under riots lately. Yeah. VPNs, good things. And maybe we'll do a, a more in-depth show. I, I intended for this to be more in-depth show, but real life got in the way. So you got a new show instead. <laughs> so uh, we will jump straight into the links. And this week we actually have two links from two people. So we'll begin yes. with the command line Godfather's link. Um, this is for all those small business people out there who are trying to find a way to track you know your software or not your software but your finances uh, not just for small businesses but for also people that need to track their home uh, you know systems um, it's called wave this is done by waveapps.com and it's a free connection or a free use software um, the they it's ad supported so there's a little ad in the side but it's supposed to take over for like QuickBooks. So if you wanted to do invoicing or customer tracking or bill pay online so people can pay your bill, the bills you issue, uh, Wave is a, a solution for you that isn't going to break your bank. Uh, currently, I'm testing it out to see if it's going to replace my home shop's QuickBooks file. And so far, it's doing everything that QuickBooks did and then some. So... It's something to at least look at. It uses the same back end as QuickBooks or all the other or any of the other online accounting softwares for connecting to banks. So if your bank supports, you know, like Quicken or Quicken or QuickBooks connectivity, Wave will probably work too. Um, I like the interface. The a couple of Kaluji things that I found is like the dashboard isn't very helpful, and you don't have any heads up accounting for like your current available balances, but if you dig through the menus a little bit, you can find all that information. They have reports built in so you can get your, um, you know, what, what's my cost currently for XYZ software or how much does that person pay? Oh, how many times, you know, have they paid online to pay the bill or are they sending a check? There's lots of different things in here. Uh, I've been playing with it for about 30 days now, and I'm just I'm still finding more new new stuff in um, the menus as I go through them. So something to look at if you're looking for a um, accounting software that you want to do invoicing or estimates through. Uh, this is something you can get for nothing. That's very cool. So I'm sure they insert their own links and emails and and uh, invoices that you send and things like that, right? Yeah, it, but it's not it, it's. Um, here, let me cover up a client's invoice. I could show it to you guys. Everyone on the, the 
inter- on our that are doing the audio can't see this, but it's a just a typical yeah. invoice. You know that comes in your email, shows up as a PDF. Um, once I set up the pay on the internet button, you know all my clients can hit the button and say pay this with my credit card, and not even have to send me anything. Yeah, I'm looking at their website uh, now. They say they're uh, they specialize in uh, companies of nine employees or less, meaning yep. they really are focusing on people who do everything themselves. Um, yeah, it, it's a small business thing. Yeah. Um, cool. So if you and they do have they do have an option for payrolls. So if you are a small shop that has you know nine employees or less, or you could probably fudge it and get up to twenty, and they probably wouldn't care too much. But you know, it, it's something that if you need something and you don't want to spend the amount for QuickBooks, here's an option that you could you know at least try it and see if it's something that's worth it. Um, I do like the fact that they do have the personal financing built in there as well. So you, if you're trying to keep yourself in budget, here's a good way, especially if it can read your bank, um, this would be a good way to keep yourself on, a, on track as well. Uh, I know they do connectivity through Ally and PayPal without, I mean, it was just basically granting access, you know, like a OAuth connectivity. Uh, once I set it up, PayPal and my Ally accounts connected without a problem so it's you know for for free it's not too shabby and i like it all right and uh, uh from that uh, serious business oriented thing seth has something else yes star trek continues dot com um this is a pretty cool concept. You know, uh, I think we've talked about Star Trek kind of fan fiction in the past and Renegade Studios did some things that were really cool. But the premise of this website is, you know, for fans of the original Star Trek series, which there's a high overlap between like us nerds slash geek types and fans of the original Star Trek. Um you know, if you remember, you heard Captain Kirk, you know, space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise, you know, our five year mission. Um, and they were canceled after three and a half. Um, so this show's premise is it they're going to finish the five year mission. So obviously, you know, you don't have the glorious William Shatner playing Captain Kirk. Um, we've talked about him before on this show. But so it's totally new people playing those familiar roles and they take up some of the stories like the first one they did was like um the the one that used the the god apollo involved in the story Mm -hmm. that that's the first one they did and they've only got just a couple of episodes out now but they seem to be pretty high quality and it's an interesting premise um you know they're finishing that original five-year mission of uh star trek the original Mm. series so and uh Sulu is played by none other than Grant Imahara of the Mythbusters. Yeah. So, you know, they're people, they're, these aren't just like random bums off the street who said, let's do a Star Trek show. There's like names you'll, you know, not super A-list celebrities, but people who you may, you know, you might not know them, but you're like, oh, I know that person. What were they on kind of thing. So... Pretty cool. I just thought I would um, put it out there for the Element OPI Legion to devour um, because I know you have an insatiable lust for all things random uh, that my link has come to symbolize. Star Trek 
continues. All right. Uh, Very cool. I No, I'm not going to say that. I'll get stoned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Mark. That's, that's like that's ever stopped you before. Yeah. Well, I was never actually a fan of the original series. I watched. I've seen them all. But uh, they they never appealed to me in the way that the next generation did. It really mm-hmm. spoke to me in a much uh, much uh, pro- more profound way. And and I guess that makes sense. It was the the original one was the swashbuckling sixties, right? And the the next generation was was the the nineties, and that's the, it reflected the era in in which it, I lived. So I guess that makes sense. But uh, as much as I liked Kirk and and Spock and those things. It was more in the same way I like Sharknado than in the way I like The Next Generation. <laughs> oh, it was campy cheese off the charts. Yeah. So definitely, you know, it's like uh, like I'm a I'm a big fan of leverage. And one of my favorite things is every episode, Elliot says, damn it, Hardison, uh, for some reason or something like it. So, you know, you always like to hear Bones. Jim or Bones say, He's dead, Jim. Or yeah. damn it, Jim! I'm a doctor, not a whatever. whatever. Yeah, you know those are just yeah. those are the classic things, and the show is a classic. Probably not for the reasons <laughs> they wanted it to be, um, but yeah. I enjoy Star Trek. I will say that. Okay, uh, this show is is running into many series territory, so I'm going to cut it off here and say thanks for listening. Thanks for being uh, part of the show. Those of you guys who uh, commented uh, via email and voicemail, and you too can do that by going to elementop.com. Uh, click the contact button, uh, button, send us an email to edl at elementop.com, or give us a call at 559-IAM-OP, and that's our Google Voice uh, box, and we will play it on the air. Thanks for being with us. Seth, Chris, as always, thanks for being awesome in every way. And uh, that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Everyday Linux.